to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're talking about the late, great Nina Simone. And Caroline, what would be the podcast version of a biopic? A biopod? Ooh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which, which sounds- a biocast. A biocast. Yeah. Which sounds like some kind of medical equipment. Yeah, it probably is, actually. <laughs> it probably already is. We're probably getting sued right now. Oh, <laughs> so many trademark violations happening already. Um, yeah, so we're talking about Nina Simone. And Caroline, I got to confess to you mm-hmm. that I did not grow up listening to Nina Simone. I mean, I would hear her songs every now and then, but I wasn't a hardcore Nina Simone fan. Although, like probably everyone who was born in the mid-1980s can attest, um, I, the first time I heard her name was in Lauren Hill rapping it with the Fugees on Ready or Not, where she was like, you be Al Capone and I'll be Nina Simone and defecating on your microphone. As I was like, homeschooled and white and like <laughs> rapping in suburbia. <laughs> yeah, I think we were doing that at the same time probably. <laughs> I was in I was in Marietta doing that, which now I'm picturing like one of those American tale moments, you know, where they're both looking at the moon from and that little Kristen and, and little Caroline were were singing and dancing along with the Fugees, listening to our discmen, <laughs> our disc women at the same time. That's right. Um but recently Caroline my eyes have been opened, or my ears, I guess I should say, have been opened to the genius of Nina Simone. Because for a long time, you know, I knew who she was, and I knew that she sang all these standards and was uh, this iconic figure in jazz history. But I really didn't know that much about the breadth of her catalog and her genius and also her role as a civil rights activist. And I learned a lot of this on the Netflix documentary, What Happened, Miss Simone, directed by Liz Garbus. Yeah, What Happened, Miss Simone, which is a line from uh, a piece by Maya Angelou about her, which is really fascinating to read um, because Maya Angelou is obviously a great writer. But the way that she profiles Nina Simone is, is also very fascinating, and but it's also very warm. She obviously loves the person that she's talking about. Yeah, and it's interesting you characterize it as a, as a warm piece because uh, Nina Simone wouldn't be called warm right. by everyone in her life. She was, um, Liz Garbus was actually talking to NPR about Nina Simone in the documentary, and she was saying how um, she could easily be characterized as a difficult woman, but how a lot of times um, that is often a sexist portrayal because there were plenty of men in music who were geniuses and were also very difficult men, but they were just geniuses. Yeah, it's a full stop. Stopped there. Um, yeah, I, I watched the documentary just on the edge of my seat. I thought it was fascinating. And like you, I mean, I had a general awareness of Nina Simone and, um, and a lot of controversy was stirred up a couple years ago, not too long ago, when news first hit that they were going to make that biopic about her. And it was sort of up in the air for a while who would portray her. I mean, there's a, a million great actresses out there who, uh, you know, could potentially look like Nina Simone, which is actually a big deal that we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but they went with Zoe Saldana who's cast and created so much controversy. And so I had been more and more aware for the last couple of years. And then watching this documentary was just fascinating. 
Yeah, and her bio touches on so many things, too, that we've talked about in the podcast before. And um, we also want to note that there is some tragically relevant timing for the release of that Netflix documentary um, that attracted a ton of press just on its own. Um, but it came out on Netflix the same day President Obama delivered the eulogy for slain South Carolina Senator Clementa C. Pinckney, who was murdered um, along with those uh, seven others at Charleston's Emanuel Methodist Episcopal Church. And it would be a similar church horror and an act of racist murder that would alter the trajectory of Nina Simone's life and career. Yeah, exactly. But speaking of that trajectory, we have to talk about how she even came to music in the first place. She was born in 1933 as Eunice Wayman in Tryon, North Carolina, and she was the sixth of eight kids. Her mom was a Methodist preacher, and her dad was an entertainer and handyman. And here comes little Eunice, who's basically a musical prodigy. I mean, she took to the organ at two and a half years old and started playing at her mother's church services. Yeah, so here we go, touching on our episode a while back on child prodigies. Um, she absolutely was one of them. And in addition to her mom being a Methodist preacher, uh, she was also a housekeeper. And um, a white woman her mother cleaned houses for noticed little Eunice's talent and offered to pay for lessons with a local British piano teacher named Muriel Mazinovic, a.k.a. Ms. Mazzy, whom uh, Nina Simone would later describe as my white mama. And she started playing, you know, like you said, at her mother's church services and really developed this reputation in Tryon, which is a tiny, tiny town, um, which you can almost miss if you blink. Um, so she developed this reputation for being like the town prodigy. And so she started taking these lessons and would have regular recitals because people would want to come see her play. And she later cited a recital when she was 11, although I've also seen 12, um, but regardless, when she was young, this recital was her first time experiencing real anger at racial discrimination because her parents were asked to move from the front row to the back so that a white couple could take their place. And at 11 or 12 years old, she stopped her recital and refused to play until her parents were allowed to resume their seats in the front row. Yeah, and she talks about in the documentary how she's not even sure that she was aware of the time that it was what it what that meant necessarily. She just knew that it was wrong and that she wanted her parents back in the front row. But that was definitely sort of a critical moment for her in her development. Um, and she went on to study at Juilliard for a summer with her sights set on getting into the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia, which ended up declining her application. And she was convinced at the time that it was based on her race. It was not until later that she found out that other African-American students had been accepted. But again, this was another turning point. She had been offered a scholarship at Oberlin, but she turned it down. She thought it was beneath her. But all along, this desire to become a classical musician, to be taken seriously for her music, to really perform, to get to Carnegie Hall, it really haunted her. Yeah, I mean, she talks about how she fell in love with Bach, and that was her primary obsession. And and it was worth noting, too, that she had so much of a stake 
in getting into Curtis because it would have offered her free tuition. And before she had been ultimately rejected from the school, her family had even moved to Philadelphia. And um, her even being able to study at Juilliard had been partially funded by townspeople in Tryon who raised money for her to go. So this is like old school Kickstarter, mm-hmm. essentially. And that money had run out and all of a sudden her family's in Philadelphia and she's not accepted into Curtis. And what is she going to do? She has to do something. She has to make some money somehow. And she has this incredible gift as a pianist. So in 1954, she starts playing at a cocktail piano bar in Atlantic City and makes her stage name Nina Simone so that her mom wouldn't find out. Because keep in mind, this woman is a Methodist preacher. She is no-nonsense. They grew up in the Bible Belt. And you know that hanging out in cocktail bars and playing standards is probably not acceptable behavior. So after a couple of years of uh, playing in these cocktail bars... Uh, and she's been asked to sing, and so she's been singing and playing and honing her craft. She arrives in New York City in 1958, gets her first top, first and only top 40 hit with I Loves You, Porgy, and briefly marries white beatnik Don Ross. Yeah, and there was that uh, point in the documentary where they show her um, performing I Loves You, Porgy, um, in the, what was it, the Playboy show? like the Playboy Hef- Penthouse. The Playboy Penthouse show. So there's like old school, black and white, Hugh Hefner introducing this new sensation, Nina Simone. And she's, you know, playing at this piano surrounded by these, you know, wealthy white men with attractive white women draped across them, um, which was just such a, such a snapshot of that time. And, and you can see from the beginning too how, I mean, even though her voice becomes so iconic, she was kind of a reluctant singer. I mean, it was something that she kind of had to do, almost sing for her supper. Otherwise, she wouldn't have been able to perform starting out at those earlier piano bars. But, and like you said, she finds success. She's in New York. Her career is really taking off. And she, she has a singular drive for success, but really more financial stability. I mean, Nina Simone wants to become rich. And she has since, you know, divorced Don Ross. They were married, I think, maybe less than a year. And in 1961, she ends up marrying Andrew Stroud, who is a former New York City police officer who ends up becoming her manager. Yeah, because as much as Nina Simone wanted to make money herself and become rich, Stroud definitely saw dollar signs in his eyes, I take it, when he looked at her, because obviously she's like overwhelmingly talented. She's so good at what she does. And so he sees this as an opportunity to take her, her wild creativity and her amazing skill with the piano and her amazing vocal skills and sort of point them in a direction. And that direction is becoming basically what we how the way we think of Aretha Franklin today. That's what he sort of wanted for his wife to be that cash cow who was on top 40 radio making so much money. Yeah. I mean, because also by this time, Nina Simone had developed a reputation for being a very difficult performer. There were a number of clubs that did not care to book her because, as we'll talk about more, um, if you were not there to see Nina Simone, 
do Nina Simone, then she was not going to have it. Yeah. So Stroud steps in and is like, okay, we're going to put together a plan. And the thing that he promises her is Carnegie Hall, where all of those childhood dreams of Bach and being respected as a classical musician would finally come to fruition. And in fact, on April 12th, 1963, she plays Carnegie Hall. Yeah, and and Strat I think had to put up. Well, it was his entire police pension, right, to sort of pay for the promotion, to even draw attention to the fact that here's this amazing performer at Carnegie Hall. Come see her. But in the same way that so many events in her life would sort of parallel things going on in the civil rights movement, her performance was the same day that Martin Luther King was locked up in Birmingham. Yeah, and so you start to see, like you said, like this these parallel things happening and it sort of pits Nina Simone against herself on the one hand um, as she once told Rogue Magazine all my life I felt the terrible pressure of having to survive so she has this almost primal need to amass as much wealth as possible and she is starting to do that through Stroud's management but too you have this civil rights movement picking up and her personal passion for that also really coming to life. Um, and before we get more into her as a civil rights activist, let's talk a little bit about her voice and music, because in a lot of ways, it's undefinable. Uh, people call her the high priestess of soul, and she defies genres in a lot of ways. Uh, NPR music writer David Brent Johnson notes how she incorporated jazz, blues, folk, pop, show tunes, gospel, and R&B into these performances and albums. Yeah, it's sort of amazing to see the product of her creating out of necessity. Because here's this amazingly classically trained musician. She's so good at what she does. She's a prodigy. She's so just like, it's just intuitive when she sits down at the piano. But performing early on in her career at those piano bars, in those cocktail clubs and having to, like you said, sing for her supper, you know, people don't want to hear Bach at the bar. And so... Well, speak for yourself, Caroline. (laughs) (laughs) I'm speaking for those jerks in New York or Atlantic City or wherever. Um... Yeah, you know, they they didn't want to hear just like classical music played for an entire set, which that was another thing that Nina Simone said that she had to get used to, the idea of a set. She's like, well, all right, you want me to pay, play for 45 minutes? That's fine. I've been playing for eight hours a day for basically my whole life, so that's cool. Um, but being sort of in that position of being an entertainer, having to do this out of necessity to make money and live and get by to try to achieve her dreams, it meant she had to incorporate a lot of popular stuff at the time. And so what came out of that with some really amazing and interesting music? Yeah, so you have recognizable tunes like I Put a Spell on You that she reinvented and made so growly and intense But then also you have this children's song that she wrote in the wake of uh, Lorraine Hansberry's death called Young, Gifted and Black, that she wanted to have this song so that black children everywhere could feel proud of themselves. And then, of course, she ended up writing protest songs like Mississippi Goddamn, um, which we're going to talk about more in just a minute. And then, for instance, President Obama's favorite Nina Simone song, Sinner Man, which I was listening to, Caroline, before we came into this podcast. And it is going on loop 
in the back of my head so that I'm talking to Anina Simone Toon, although oh, you cannot hear it. Interesting. It's got it's very up tempo. Well, I'm glad you're having a good time. Well, you know, I'm having a great time too. Excellent. Um, but yeah, the the song is a traditional spiritual about a sinner trying to hide on Judgment Day. So there we see we we've got great examples of how she incorporates all of these different musical traditions to really create her own place. In music, and uh, she even did the song "Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood," which was covered by the Animals. Which I had to have a, a misconception in my head corrected. Oh, did you think it was flip flop? I thought it was the other way around. I thought Nina Simone and got ignorant Caroline Irvin, the podcaster, uh, totally thought that that was the Animals song. But no, she performed this wonderful song, and the Animals covered it. But it, it's interesting to read too about her relationship with. With um, people doing rock and roll music, specifically in England and abroad, um, she was sort of fascinated by them. And she wrote her brother basically saying, like, all of these young white kids in England and France and stuff are doing dances that you and I used to do when we were kids. And they're doing this black music in their own way. And it's so fascinating. And she was so enthralled, not only by that idea and found it very interesting, but also by the idea that she was just really loved. People, when she went abroad, people just really loved her. And she didn't feel the same sort of edges of that racial confinement that she so often butted up against in America. Yeah, she was definitely more comfortable abroad than in what she would later call the United Snakes of America. And I mean, her, her blackness was very much a part of her art as well. Um, in a 1966 column in the Philadelphia Tribune, um, her singing was described as being, quote, to be brought into abrasive contact with the black heart and to feel the power and beauty which for centuries have beat there. And at the same time, that that depth and expression of her voice was sometimes criticized for being too masculine because she does have such a low register depending on what she's singing. And then on top of that, as we mentioned earlier, she demanded the full attention of her audience. I mean, that's what she needed in order to perform because she wasn't just sitting there like playing little songs and ditties. I mean, it was... You can tell if you watch her perform that it is a full mind, body, emotional performance for her. And so she was known to heckle people or even leave the stage if someone was talking. She would stop and she would point. I mean, oh, oh, Nina Simone, thank goodness that she uh, was not performing in the era of cell phones and text messaging. I don't think oh, she would get through Lord. a single concert. Yeah, the closest thing to that I've seen is going to a Nico Case concert and seeing her stop everything for somebody who has a cell phone out. Um, but yeah, you can imagine that, well, I would have loved it. Like, yeah, you tell them to shut up. Um, not everybody, including promoters, was as big a fan of that. And so that was another kind of stumbling block to maintaining a mainstream status. You know, her husband at this point, as we get uh, deeper and deeper into the 60s, 
Her husband is getting concerned with her interest in the civil rights movement, that she's focusing too much on that rather than creating pop music. He's concerned that she's too, you know, moody and abrasive to the people around her in her career. Um, but she does not let that stop her. She dove head first into the civil rights movement. And we're going to talk about Nina Simone, civil rights activist, when we come right back from a quick break. So as a dark-skinned black woman raised in the Jim Crow South, Nina Simone continually experienced racism from the get-go. I mean, we mentioned that incident with the recital when she was 11 or 12 years old, but she was constantly told that her skin was too dark and her nose was too broad, essentially that she looked too African. And she even once commented on how she never made the cover of Jet or Ebony magazines because they preferred whiter-looking cover stars like Diana Ross. So... Her uh, appearance was something that was often at the forefront of her mind as she thought about her place, not only in the music industry, but also in American society more broadly at this time of so much racial unrest. But, I mean, that brings us back to when we talked earlier about the biopic that's been made with, with Zoe Saldana and how... If you're not aware of this backstory about how there was so much focus from outside and from within on her appearance, you might not understand why people were up in arms about the casting choice. Since Nina Simone herself said, they're picking people who look like darker skinned white people to appear on magazines rather than people who look like me. Yeah. At one point, she writes in her diary, I can't be white and I'm the kind of colored girl who looks like everything white people despise or have been taught to despise. If I were a boy, it wouldn't matter so much. But I'm a girl and in front of the public all the time, wide open for them to jeer and approve of or disapprove of. So she gets it. I mean, she's been she's been exposed to basically appearance shaming of every kind her entire life and understands that women have it way worse than guys do. Yeah, and and it's also, too, in the early 1960s that she becomes more radicalized. Uh, she's palling around with leading black activists and scholars of the day, including James Baldwin, Langston Hughes, Stokely Carmichael, and others. And uh, we mentioned Lorraine Hansberry earlier, uh, who inspired the song Young, Gifted, and Black. And um, she was a playwright who wrote A Raisin in the Sun, who was incredibly successful, brilliant, and became extremely close friends with Nina Simone and really provided her not just an education in black identity, but also black womanhood and feminism. Yeah, there's a great quote where uh, Simone says, it was always Marx, Lenin and revolution, real girls talk. And I just love that, that she's finally getting this relationship with someone who is believing in her her own, her being Nina Simone, believing in her own independence and intelligence and giving her the credit to be able to talk about this stuff and understand this stuff, whereas it seems like she had just been surrounded by people, particularly her overbearing husband, who were just like, I don't care, just stay on this career track. Oh, an overbearing 
not only overbearing, but also outright abusive, which we'll talk about more in a little bit. Um, but in terms of her relationship with Hansberry, she wrote in her memoir much later on, uh, quote, I started to think about myself as a black person in a country run by white people and a woman in a world run by men. And I mean, that relationship with Hansberry was so, so formative for her and unfortunately ended so quickly because Hansberry died of cancer in 1965, which was a tragic moment for Nina Simone. And so what really ended up radicalizing Nina Simone in terms of the civil rights movement was a couple of events that happened really close together. One was the murder of civil rights organizer Medgar Evers. The other was the bombing of Birmingham's 16th Street Baptist Church, which killed four young black girls who were leaving Bible class. And so at this point, Nina Simone is like, listen, I cannot just sit here and and just play music. I, I have to do something. Yeah. And the first thing she tried to do was make a gun. I mean, she wanted she wanted to kill. She was enraged by it. And. Um, she, she tried to make a gun and was quickly like, oh, I can't make a gun. And I think also her husband, Andrew, was like, oh, Nina, please don't try to make a gun. This is not the answer. And so she ends up writing in an afternoon uh, this protest song, Mississippi Goddamn. And uh, not surprisingly, because of the title, uh, the song was banned on some radio stations and crates of records were sent back broken in protest um, and the the chorus to the song says, Alabama's gotten me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi. Goddamn. And if you listen to her and watch her playing this song, I mean, she even starts off saying how the name of this tune is Mississippi. Goddamn. And I mean, every word of it. Well, because in addition to that chorus, she also um imitates white people in the community telling black people and black activists to take it slowly, go slow, and her backup singers say too slow, um, which is a refrain that you hear today in terms of any type of civil rights organizing. There's always somebody in power saying, well, well let's slow down a little. Let's, let's not take this so fast. And so it wasn't, it definitely wasn't just the name of the song. It was the whole idea, the ideology contained within it that just put a lot of people off, to say the least. Yeah. I mean, it's so after this song comes out, she plays Carnegie Hall for a second time and she sings Mississippi Goddamn. And when she gets to the part saying, Oh, but this country is full of lies and you're all going to die and die like flies, she slows it down and looks out into the predominantly white audience sitting there. And I mean, she, she, like she said, she means what she is singing. Um, and, and we should note too, that she had long supported the student nonviolent coordinating committee, the Congress of race equality and the NAACP. Um, but this is when she really throws herself even more publicly and visibly into the civil rights movement. So she's marching, she's playing benefit concerts, she's really using the stage as her platform to speak truth to power and express her lack of faith 
in that, like you said, that gradual push for civil rights. Yeah. And during the march from Selma, um, she she performs Mississippi Goddamn on a stage that's propped up by coffins. And so that in itself is a huge deal and a great turning point. But she meets Martin Luther King and sticks out her hand and says, I am not nonviolent. And every account of the event says that he gently was like, that's okay. That's That's fine. That's totally cool. And it wasn't until then that she relaxed and was like, well, you know, it's amazing to meet you. But she just had to make sure that he knew because he was he was more than just a face of the movement. I mean, to white people, he was people were so happy about the whole nonviolent thing, as you would understand. And, And so she was just making it clear to this guy who's the face of everything uh that that wasn't her jam no no i mean and she certainly wasn't the only black musician or black entertainer who was using their notoriety to help you know promote the civil rights movement but she had such a harder time simultaneously supporting a commercial career and her activism um, compared to, say, Aretha Franklin or Harry Belafonte, who were, were still able to continue selling records. But Nina Simone just with this hit a wall with a lot of it. And her prominent activism, though, contrasts the overwhelming male leadership of the civil rights movement. And this is something that we touched on a little bit, I think, in our um, a couple of podcasts on women in the civil rights movement and also in our podcast on uh, w- women abolitionists. Um, but we found a paper by Ruth Feldstein called I Don't Trust You Anymore, Nina Simone Culture and Black Activism in the 1960s. And Feldstein writes, quote, in the late 1960s, Assertions of black male pride remained at the center of calls for black power that were implicitly and explicitly gendered male. And here you have Nina Simone, who is sort of just not paying any attention to that structure whatsoever and, you know, doing her. Yeah, that's right. For instance, in 1968, in front of an audience in Harlem, she read a poem by David Nelson asking her audience, are you ready to do what is necessary? And the poem and, of course, Nina Simone encouraged the audience to break and burn white things, build black things, kill if necessary. And so you can just imagine that these are things that not a lot of other people in the mainstream are saying out loud. Well, and even just if you look at Mississippi Goddamn, which had come out a few years prior to that, um, a comedian, Dick Gregory, was talking about this in the Netflix documentary, What Happened in Miss Simone. Um, and he said, if you look at all the suffering black folks went through, not one black man would dare say Mississippi Goddamn. We all wanted to say it, but she said it. And so then by 1970... A lot of disillusionment had set in and, quote, the days when revolution really had seemed possible were gone forever, especially when you consider that a lot of people around her and a lot of people important to the movement, people like Martin Luther King and Hansberry and Malcolm X and so many other integral figures were gone. Yeah, they were either dead or imprisoned. And a lot of public attention and protests, too, by this point had shifted away from civil rights and toward Vietnam. And Simone was really devastated. I mean, 
obviously at this point we have a lot of uh, domestic abuse that's been going on in the background for a while and uh, mental illness that has been left untreated for a long time, which only compounds this. But, I mean, she she really felt like the cause was dead. Yeah, and so in 1974, she leaves for Liberia, where she she writes a lot about how free she finally feels, how amazing it is to be there. Um, because for her, yeah, everything everything had been lost. And so her marriage has broken down at this point, um, and she's no longer performing. Yeah, and she uh, she ends up just like saying screw it to the U.S. She's not paying taxes. I mean, she kind of goes off the grid, and. Uh, her daughter, Lisa, comes to live with her for, I think it's two years in Liberia, but that was an incredibly tumultuous time. Uh, Nina Simone was not healthy um, in a lot of ways when she was living there. And this is when we get to talking about Nina Simone, the person behind the persona, because... Uh, you know, mental illness and domestic violence were just major factors going on in the background of her career ascent and then descent. Yeah. So during this time, during this in the background, she's likely suffering from bipolar disorder or possibly borderline personality disorder. She did try psychoanalysis for a while, which her husband made her quit. She also tried hypnosis, relied on drugs and sex and drinking for a while but she turned a lot to writing. She has extensive diaries, which are a fascinating look into the inner workings, everything that's going on behind the scenes during this time. And a lot of what's going behind the scenes in her nine-year marriage with Andrew Stroud, who you know has also taken over her career in a lot of ways, um, and whom she blames for her depression because she's constantly touring and constantly performing to which he says, well, you want to be rich? You want to live in big houses? Here you go. You've got to work. Um, but they had an incredibly violent relationship. I mean, he began beating her very soon into, I don't know if it had started before they were married, but certainly once they were married, um, it quickly turned violent and that was something that their daughter witnessed as well. I mean, it was a hallmark of their relationship. Yeah. And so, you know, we talked about how she left the United States for Liberia. And during those couple of years that her daughter was with her, uh, Simone went from being the abused to the abuser and uh, beating her daughter and berating her for being light skinned. And of course, Lisa point, pointed out to her mother, well, you picked my father. I didn't. Yeah. And Andrew Stroud is a light skinned black man. Um, so after Liberia, though, she moves to Switzerland and then Paris. And she is almost penniless by this point. She hasn't been touring, hasn't been paying taxes. And friends finally intervene to get her mental help. Um, and... It's it's at this point, too, in the documentary where you see, too, this physical transformation of Nina Simone because, I mean, the mental health influence can impact your 
you know, your outside appearance too. And she just hadn't been taking care of herself for so long. Well, she hadn't been taking care of herself, but also once she did receive a diagnosis for bipolar disorder, thanks to the friends who stepped in and were like, you can't live like this. You're living in filth. You're not taking care of yourself. We're going to take you to the doctor. She got on medication, but the whole thing with the medication was that it's going to interfere with her motor skills with the way that she looks and the way that she carries herself, but more specifically, the way that she sings and plays the piano. The doctor said, well, this is eventually going to take her skills away from her. And it's it, there's an interesting moment in the documentary when her daughter Lisa is talking about this and she's she's talking about it in sort of a detached manner in terms of like, here's what happened. But she frames it in terms of like those guys in France um basically took away her they interfered with her her craft her skill her gift and that's i think an interesting perspective coming from a child of abuse yeah i mean but it at that point it was a life or death situation mm-hmm. her friends were like okay you will have to perform so that you can live or you're you have to remain untreated and you're going to die mm-hmm. and she chose to perform and live. And uh, so she, her career slowly starts picking up a little bit. I mean, she starts playing jazz festivals and things like that. She rarely returns to the United States. Um, and actually in 1987, she has a mini comeback when Chanel picked up uh, My Baby Just Cares for Me for their international TV campaign. So she gets some additional touring out of that. But um, I mean, it, it just her life kind of winds down after that in a really tragic kind of way, which seems largely the product of mental illness left unchecked. And then in 2002, she was diagnosed with breast cancer and she died the following year. Yeah. So this amazing talent, this amazing activist, this amazing voice gets snuffed out. But she left behind an incredible legacy for anyone willing to look into it. And that's why, I mean, this documentary uh, was so fascinating to it was such a fascinating entry into learning more about her. Well, and also helping revive her profile, because for a long time, she was largely written out of jazz history. Mm -hmm. I mean, she has in more recent years as biographies have been published um, and her catalogs revived. Um, she has gotten her due more for really establishing that sound of modern jazz. <laughs> and it did also help when uh, President Obama cited Sinnerman as uh, one of his songs always on his uh, iPod playlist that ushered her into the 21st century mainstream. But I think that these nuances of her biography and who Nina Simone really was as a fixture in the 1970s, in the midst of not so much the development of jazz, but more just the development of the United States and race relations. Um, I think a lot of people had been, or at least myself, had been unaware of the role that she played. Yeah. And and so it's fascinating to learn about that. But not everybody was super pleased with the documentary or the way that her life was framed, because, you know, like you said at the top of the podcast, Kristen, there are plenty of male artists 
throughout history of, of various types of art who have been considered geniuses, but they were, they were like mad geniuses, but that madness was attractive. It was something that was positive in their life as a force. But, um, when you talk about women, the conversation is a little bit different. And so Tanya Steele at IndieWire basically says, can we not just accept and love and respect her as an artist full stop? Do we have to qualify her genius by talking about the fact that she had this mental illness and this abusive background? Yeah, well, and she also took huge issue with um, Liz Garbus, the documentarian, allowing interviews with Andrew Stroud, her horrendously abusive ex-husband, to be included in the documentary as though he is helping shape her narrative um, and saying that that's, you know, that's just an injustice to her. Yeah, basically that she had such extensive diary entries and we have her daughter there. Um, can we not let Nina speak for herself? Um, which, I mean, she certainly does in the documentary, but uh, Steele def- definitely takes interest with Andrew Stroud's presence. Yeah, because it, it's not only, as, as, as Steele writes about, it's, it's not just how are we interpreting female genius, but it's black female genius. And she sees it as almost perpetuating stereotypes of the angry black woman or the mad black woman and says that it, it sort of delegitimizes her role in culture more broadly and jazz history more specifically. But I mean, I would, I would hope as, and I mean, as a casual Netflix viewer sitting on my couch that a documentary that I watch about a public figure would include an explanation of their life and how they lived it. And part of that sometimes is mental illness or is a background that is frightening to other people. Yeah, I mean, it's that question of whether knowing someone's demons diminishes their legacy as a genius. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of times, too, it, it's it's so heartbreaking to find out that, that someone that you idolize has has faults, you know, to say the least. And But I think it's still possible to appreciate her and acknowledge her role and her, you know, being a child prodigy all the way up to, you know, the role that she played in the civil rights movement as um, as controversial as it was, mm-hmm. you know, calling for white people to be killed and white things to be burned down um, and then fleeing the country. Uh, so really curious, though, to hear from listeners on this what are your thoughts on Nina Simone? Uh, do you have a favorite song? Does the, the, her biography influence um, how you listen to her music at all? We're really curious to hear all of your thoughts. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Letter here from Olivia about our interview with Hillary Frank, host of the podcast you need to listen to if you aren't already, The Longest Shortest Time. Um, she writes, I wanted to thank you for sharing such an amazing podcast and community. I had no clue it was out there. I just had my son four months ago and have never in my life felt so deceived by women. 
While I'm not the typical mom, I did have a super average pregnancy and a very easy delivery. But my postpartum experience was horrible. And she goes on to say how when she found out she was pregnant, she was thrilled. She'd always wanted kids. But you can't prepare yourself for something you don't know is coming. When my son came, I was ready for the Mack truck of love, but instead I was hit with a Mack truck of panic and anxiety. I spent lots of time trying to nurse or bent over the changing table, bawling my eyes out. I felt ashamed for not loving my son the moment he was born. On top of that, I felt so alone and isolated. Because of this high anxiety level, my blood pressure skyrocketed and my milk didn't come in. So my son cried constantly, which only fed into my feelings of inadequacy as a mom. I felt like I had to keep all of these struggles quiet because you can't say you feel anything but love for your child out loud. I reached out to my OBGYN who delivered my son and his answer was, you're not depressed, and that was the end of the story. I was determined to fight my way out of this, so I changed my diet, started exercising, and went outside every day. A few weeks before I was about to go back to work, I was in such a dark place, I started to push my boyfriend away, and I was sure our relationship was coming to an end. I was preparing myself mentally to be a single parent when he said to me, I've been with you when your mother was diagnosed with cancer, when your grandmother was diagnosed with cancer, and through your parents' divorce. I have never seen you like this. I just want you to feel better. That's when I took my health into my own hands. I visited my primary care doctor who prescribed me medication, and I found a therapist. Now I've been back at work for a month and am feeling more like myself. I feel like a confident mom. Other than the struggle I have with not being able to breastfeed my child, I love him more than anything. That Mack truck of love hit me finally. I wish more women talked about this stuff. Even when I reached out to my mom, she didn't know what to do. She knew I wasn't depressed, but she had no suggestions for me. I think as women, we're doing a disservice to each other not sharing these stories. Those first few months for me were such a struggle, and I wasn't prepared for that at all. I wish someone would have told me. So I tell everyone, I love your podcast, and so does my son. We listen to them on the way to daycare in the morning. So thank you so much, Olivia, for sharing that story that I know is going to resonate with a lot of our listeners as well. Well, I have a letter here from a listener who wishes to remain anonymous in response to our episode on science fiction. She says, I'm someone who attends Worldcon every year and has worked on Worldcon convention committees. I was totally not expecting to hear you guys talking about this community that I'm so intimately involved in. The current situation with the Hugos and the puppies is so massively frustrating. The central argument from the puppies is that there's this social justice warrior cabal that has been manipulating the Hugos and ensuring that women and people of color and queer people win Hugos or people who write about those groups. That this doesn't reflect the will and interest of, quote, real sci-fi fans, who so far as I can tell are straight white men, who read real science fiction, which is basically 50s pulp with ray guns and spaceships and anything else is, quote, message fiction. What they're basically saying is women and people of color and queer people aren't capable of writing well enough to win awards on their own. And they seem to think the only reason the author would write about, say, people of color is because they want to make some sort of political statement in order to cater to this group of SJWs. Not because, you know, there are people of color in the world, and so writing should reflect that. Writing about a world solely inhabited by white people is much more of a political statement than writing about a diverse world that reflects the one we live in. 
What we're seeing with the puppies is so similar to what happened in Gamergate. A bunch of straight white men assumed for a long time that science fiction is solely about them and for them. And when women and people of color and queer people speak up and say, no, this is actually for us too, and we've always been here, they freak out and decide that it's a personal attack on them that they must defend against. The good news is the reason it's happening is because we're being loud and refusing to put up with them anymore. So that's optimistic and optimistic note to end on. So thank you for sending us that letter. And thanks to everyone who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with links to learn more about Nina Simone and watch that Netflix documentary. If you are so inclined, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 